We're going to be talking about the Bible this morning. You ready for that? You need to have your uh, attention arrested by the Holy Spirit, tuned in. You can take your Bible in your hand or click on your Bible app, whatever the case may be. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Today we're wrapping up our very intriguing series on worldviews, and I'm hoping that you've learned some things uh, over the course of the past several weeks. You know, when Pastor Jay spoke to us last weekend about the Christian worldview, he mentioned this. He said, uh, our confidence in the truth of Christian theism rests in the reliability of two things, Jesus and the Bible. But where do we learn most about Jesus? From the Bible. And so the most basic question that can be asked is this, can you trust the Bible? Is it reliable? Is it trustworthy? Can you stake your life and eternity on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E? You know, one guy wrote, your Bible reading might need a little boost if you think that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife, (laughs) if you fall for it every time your pastor says, turn to first hesitations, and you're flipping in there trying to find it. And if you think Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were a rock band who had a few hits back in the 60s, your Bible reading might need a boost. It might need a boost. Well, I don't know about you. I've staked my entire life, ministry, and eternity on the truthfulness of this book. If the Bible's not true, I'm doomed. I'm sunk. If the Bible's not reliable, not accurate, then we're wasting our time here today, aren't we? Worship is a farce, a joke. The Bible's not true, then when you try to share Jesus with other people at your workplace or at your school, you're just simply peddling deception. The scriptures are not a reliable source of truth, and the gospel is a hoax, and all who believe it are deceived. Now, there's a whole lot we could go into today as we talk about the Bible. When I was compiling all my notes and research from past years, it amounted to about three days' worth of material. You can thank God that we're not going to do all that this morning. (laughs) Think about the topics we could talk about. What is the Bible? How is the Bible put together? How is it structured? How did we get the Bible? How did it make its way down to us through the centuries? What's unique about the Bible? I'd love to go into all that, but I can't. So what I want to do this morning is kind of step into the courtroom, as it were, and attempt to build a case for just one thing, the reliability of the Bible as the Word of God. I know that some people think that Christianity is based on blind faith. You ever heard anybody say that? You know, you're just taking a leap into the dark out there. (laughs) But I beg to differ. Certainly faith is required for sure. But it's not blind faith. It's not believing things that aren't true. It's entrusting your life to a person whom you can't see, but whom you've been told about in the pages of this book, the Bible. So we're going to talk about the Bible today. And I want all of us to understand this morning, that there are many good reasons for believing the Bible. My graduate work was in this very field of Christian apologetics because if I was going to give my life to ministering God's Word to people, I wanted to be confident that the Bible was solid, that it was trustworthy, reliable. And at the conclusion of my studies, I was thoroughly convinced that I could teach God's Word with great confidence. You can trust the Bible. You don't have to shrink back from those water cooler conversations or those Facebook exchanges. Our faith and indeed the entire Christian worldview is based on solid facts and supported by solid evidence. So here we go. You can pull the, worship, uh, pull the study guide out, out of your worship folder. I'm going to give you seven reasons this morning, seven of many that I could give you. You can stake your life and base your hope for, for eternity on the book, the Bible. Number one, here's where we're going to start. The Bible claims to be true revelation from God, the truth of God, claims it for itself. Now, I know that this point by itself is not sufficient to prove the Bible's authority because other sacred writings make similar claims, but this is where I want to begin because we need to be clear. The prophets and the apostles, the human authors who penned the scriptures, they made astounding claims about their writings. Just know that what Moses and David and Isaiah and Daniel and Jonah and Matthew and John and Paul and others wrote down, they believed to be of divine origin. They believed to be it, it, the Word of God. So many times in the Scriptures you read these words, thus saith the Lord, the Lord, common phrase in the Bible. This is the Word of the Lord, you'll read. Or the Word of God came to me 3,808 
times the Bible writers refer to what they wrote as the Word of God. That's worth noting. They claim divine authority for their message. And all of that supports the basic contention that we find in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture, it says, is breathed out by God. The Word of God. You know, even skeptics of Christianity don't really doubt this point that the Bible claims to be of divine origin. Bible writers firmly believe that they were incredibly privileged to be hearing and writing down the very words of God. So, let's proceed in our case with that truth in mind that the Bible claims to be revelation from God. Number two, the Bible meets the criteria for reliable history. Now, I need you to stay with me on this one, okay? I'm going to check back in with you as we walk through this because I'm going to get a little bit technical here, but I'm, I'm trying to help you so that when you're talking with your friends and coworkers and family members who are skeptics, who don't think the Bible is solid, you'll have something to share with them, okay? So, so hang in there with me. If the Bible was on trial in a court of law, this is where I'd start my argument. I would contend vehemently that the Bible records history and records it accurately. And what I mean by that is that the Bible contains many accounts of various historical events, and we can believe those events really happened as the Bible reports them. So, when you read the Bible about thick, tall city walls come tumbling down, when people walked around it seven times and blew their horns, you can believe that that really happened because it's found in the Bible. Or when you read of a man being swallowed by a big fish, or of a Jewish man healing blindness, or when you read of more commonplace events taking place, you can rest assured that those things really happened in history. Now, does everybody believe that? No, there's a lot of people who don't believe that. The question to be answered is this, how do we determine the historical reliability and accuracy of reports that are found in ancient writings? Are there standard tests that historians apply to such accounts? And if so, how does the Bible fare when those same tests are applied to the Bible? Well, I have a phrase I want to stick in your mind this morning, and here it is. The Bible always smokes the competition. Would you say that with me? The Bible always smokes the competition. Yes, it does. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. Think about this. Do you believe it's true that in April 1865, President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. by a man named John Wilkes Booth. Do you believe that really happened in history? On what basis do you believe that? You weren't there. Yeah. Other people were. Eyewitnesses, what we call it, right? And they wrote about it and they passed it down and you read their account in a history book somewhere or saw a documentary on the History Channel that was based on those accounts and so you believe it. There was eyewitness testimony that got written down and passed on, and that's how we can know with certainty events that happened 150 years ago. Let me go back further. Do you believe it's true that Julius Caesar was assassinated by Brutus in 44 BC in the theater of Pompeii? Do you believe that really happened? On what basis do you believe it happened? You weren't there. That was over 2,000 years ago. What you might not know is that what happened that day was first reported by a man named Nicolaus of Damascus who wrote an account of that famous murder. Now, Nick wasn't actually there at the scene of the crime when it happened, but he did talk with eyewitnesses who were. And so he wrote down their account, and it's considered reliable to this day, and we don't really doubt it. We believe that's what happened. What I'm trying to get at is that historians have a generally accepted set of criteria by which they determine and verify history, what actually happened in times past, since none of us were there to witness those events. I don't know if you ever studied this, but, but if, if you haven't, let me just, I laid them out there for you on your study outline. Here are the tests that historians apply. First, are there any written accounts of what happened? Were the accounts written or authorized by eyewitnesses? Is each account internally consistent with itself? 
If there are several accounts, can they reasonably be brought together and harmonized? Were the accounts written fairly soon after the events that they claim to report? Do we have the original autographs, the, the, the actual writings that were first recorded? Or if not, do we have good copies? Is there any external corroboration, secondary sources? And is there any archaeological evidence to support the accounts? Are you guys staying with me? Stay with me, okay? This is important. You can imagine, this by itself could be an entire seminar or even the bulk of an entire semester course, as it was for me. But I'll be brief, and you can study more on your own. How about the Bible? How does the Bible stack up to these tests? How does the Bible fare when these tests are applied to Scripture? Well, as I said, the Bible always smokes the competition. You say, well, are there any written accounts of what happened? Let's take just the life of Jesus Christ, for example, 2,000 years ago. Are there any written accounts of his life and ministry? Well, yes, you hold four of them in your hands, right? The gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospels, every one of them is a written account of the life of Jesus. Okay, first test. Second test, were the accounts written or authorized by eyewitnesses? Answer, yes. Matthew and John were each disciples of Jesus Christ, so they saw firsthand the things that they ended up writing down. Mark's gospel is believed to be penned through the eyes of who? Do you know? Peter. That's right. Uh, scholars who study this have determined that Peter, who said that he would leave behind an eyewitness account of his experiences, did that through Mark, so that when you read the book of Mark, you're getting the gospel through Peter's eyes. And in Luke, you're getting the gospel through Paul's eyes, because Luke was a traveling companion of Paul, who was a contemporary of Jesus, saw not only the risen Christ, but most likely knew Jesus before his death. So yes, early church historians like Eusebius and Clement and Papias all confirmed their belief that the four gospels were written or authorized by eyewitnesses. How about this next test? Is each account internally consistent, and can they reasonably be harmonized with each other? What do you think? Well, it's yes and yes. <laughs> I'm not aware of any serious challenges to the internal consistency of each of those gospel accounts. Now, there are a few difficulties in harmonizing them with each other, but they are resolved when we understand that the four writers were four very different men with four different backgrounds writing for four different purposes to four different audiences. Just to kind of think this through a little bit more, just think about this. Think about if after church today, out here on Stigler Road, there was an accident, okay? And I hope that doesn't happen. But let's say there were four eyewitnesses to that accident who decided that they needed to write down an account of what they witnessed, what they saw that day. Would those four accounts be identical? No, they wouldn't. They would vary based on a lot of different factors, right? Those individuals backgrounds, their command of the English language, whether or not they had ever been in an auto accident would probably inform their account, their perspective, their vantage point, where they were, you know, on the intersection out there in terms of what they saw. In fact, if all four of their accounts coincided exactly and were identical, we'd probably be suspicious of that, thinking that maybe they copied each other. You'd have four accounts that would be different but could be harmonized. Dr. David Beck contends that biblical scholars are in agreement that there are no clear contradictions in the gospel accounts and that they can be harmonized when you take those different perspectives into account. Next test applied to the Bible. Were the accounts written fairly soon after the events that they record? The answer is yes. Yes, the best research indicates that the gospels were written within 20 to 30 years Remember that, within 20 to 30 years of the events that they report on. And that's a, that's a historians say that's a great time period, 20 to 30 years for, for some objectivity, and also that gives people enough time to interview all of the witnesses, to compile all of the evidence, and yet there's enough distance there to allow for some objectivity. Think about the best books written on Vietnam and on Watergate. Those came out in the, the 90s, you know, because there'd been time enough past Everybody could get a clearer perspective. All the witnesses could be interviewed. All the sources compiled. That's what we have in the gospel accounts. Most of them written in the 50s and 60s A.D. Well, do we have the original autographs? Answer? No, we don't. 
There was no Xerox paper back then. And the stuff they wrote on, papyrus and stuff like that, would decompose in that Middle Eastern climate within a few years or even a few months. In fact, we don't have the originals of any documents from antiquity. They don't exist. So then, next question, do we have good copies? And the answer is a resounding yes, yes, yes. Compared to other writings of antiquity, we have more copies, better copies, earlier copies than any other ancient text. Norm Geisler wrote this, there's more abundant manuscript evidence for the Bible than for any other book in the world. Which translated says, the Bible smokes the competition. Let me just illustrate this. How many of you have ever, in high school had to read Homer's Odyssey or Iliad? Remember that? And that was a tome, wasn't it, to read? Now, did your literature teacher ever stand up, you know, during that assignment and say, now, hey class, I got to tell you, you can't really be sure that what you're reading in that book there was actually what Homer wrote, because he wrote it in 900 BC, and the earliest copies we have of Homer's Iliad date to 400 BC. So you can't really be sure that what you're reading there is the actual plot and storyline that Homer actually wrote. Did your teacher ever stand up and say that? Mine didn't. Just assumed, yeah, we got it, right? This is Homer's Iliad. Well, think about this. Homer's Iliad, there, the first earliest copy that we have, he wrote in 900 B.C., dates to 400 B.C., 500 years after he wrote it. There are 643 copies in existence of Homer's Iliad. You say, how does that compare to the Bible? Well, the Bible smokes the competition. There are over 5,600, 5,600 manuscripts and copies and fragments of the Bible. And the earliest ones date to within 90 years of when the originals were written. So are you following this now? Homer's Iliad, 600 plus copies. The Bible, 5,600 copies. Homer's Iliad, earliest copy, 500 years later. The Bible, 90 years later. The Bible smokes the competition. Ravi Zacharias, you ever heard of that guy? Yeah. Smart, smart man. Scary smart. He wrote this, In real terms, the New Testament is easily the best attested ancient writing in terms of the sheer number of documents, the time span between the events and the document, and the variety of documents available to sustain or contradict it, there is nothing in ancient manuscript evidence to match such textual availability and integrity. Nothing else like the Bible. It smokes the competition. How about this question? I don't know if you ever thought about this. Is there any external corroboration? Secondary sources, secular sources. Did anybody else besides Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John write about Jesus back in those days? What do you think? It's true. Several early Jewish sources, the most notable of which was named, do you know his name? Josephus, lived in the first century. That's the century Jesus lived in. Wrote about Jesus Christ. There was a Roman historian as well named Tacitus, lived during the first century, a contemporary of Jesus. In fact, my seminary professor, Dr. Gary Habermas, wrote a book, came out while I was in seminary, called The Historical Jesus, Ancient Evidence for the Life of Jesus, detailing all the secular sources of that era that wrote about Jesus Christ. And he contended that you can put together a basic sketch of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, take the Bible off the table, just from secular historians and sources of that era writing about Jesus Christ. Isn't that intriguing? So yes, lots of external corroboration. Is there any archaeological evidence to support the accounts that we find in the Bible? Oh my, yes. You ever heard of the book Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell? Great book to read. Then the sequel, More Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Then the super sequel, Even More Evidence That Demands More of a Verdict. <laughs> and then in more recent years, he wrote one called A Ready Defense, kind of putting it all together. And he contends that the archaeological evidence is overwhelmingly in support of and verifying of the biblical accounts. During the past 200 years, many, as you know, ancient ruins and ancient sites have been excavated, and many artifacts have been uncovered. Some of those artifacts bear inscriptions of people from the Bible. Joseph, Abraham, David, Pontius Pilate. 
He was a real guy. He existed. They wrote about him. And also verifying the existence of biblical places like Nazareth and Capernaum, places where Jesus was. Dr. J.O. Kinneman wrote this, of the hundreds of thousands of artifacts found by archaeologists, not one has been discovered that contradicts or denies one word, phrase, clause, or sentence of the Bible. Okay, I say all of that to say this. When you apply historical criterion standards to this book, it passes with flying colors. It smokes all of its competition. You can trust the Bible. You don't have to check your brain at the door to become a Christian. You don't have to commit intellectual suicide to follow Jesus. It rests on solid, yes, historical evidence. The B-I-B-L-E. And that means that when the Bible talks about a certain Galilean carpenter named Yeshua, Jesus, you can be confident that Jesus really existed, that he really did stuff, that he really said stuff. Because it's recorded in this Bible. And speaking of what he said, do you know what the Gospels record Jesus saying about the Scriptures? You ever thought about this? That's the third plank of my argument. Number three, the Scriptures were viewed by Jesus very highly as authoritative. Just listen to some of the things the eyewitnesses overheard Jesus say. Matthew 5.18, words of Jesus. For truly I say to you, Until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Do you think Jesus had a high view of the Old Testament law? You bet he did. Matthew 26, 56. Again, these are his words. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then that great statement in John 10, 35. Scripture cannot be broken. Oh my, Jesus had a high, high, high regard for the Old Testament Scriptures. As a Jewish boy, he would have learned the Torah growing up. Do you remember when he was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil? And in each enticement to evil, what did Jesus do? It is written. And in that moment, he didn't have to go, where are my scrolls? Where are my scrolls? Oh no, it is written. No, he committed it to memory. It just tumbled out of his lips. He knew the Word of God. He quoted it often, referred to it often. And then Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 declares that Jesus authorized his disciples to go and proclaim his message to others and that he would give them the Holy Spirit to guide them into all truth so that their accounts would be accurate and correct. Jesus had a very high view of Scripture. Obviously, the Old Testament Scriptures, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. But you know, a skeptic might hear that and come along and say, well, okay, so Jesus had a high view of scripture. Why should I believe what he said? Why should I embrace his view? Well, remember what Pastor Jay said to us last week? If a guy claims to be God and then rises from the dead, follow that guy. Believe that guy. If he has a certain view of the Bible, embrace that view. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ recorded in the the, the account of scriptures demonstrated and validated his claim that he was the Son of God. And if you ignore or discount the view of the Son of God on anything, you do so to your own peril. Wouldn't you agree? Embrace his view. And he had a high view. Think about this fourth fact. The Bible has exhibited amazing indestructibility. (laughs) Amazing indestructibility. Isaiah wrote this, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Do you know how many men have tried to stamp out and eliminate the word of God? One man writing about the Bible said, this anvil has worn out many hammers over the years. Men have tried to eliminate it, stamp it out, collect copies and burn them, trying to destroy the word of God. For example, this man, Diocletian, was a Roman emperor in the 4th century, and he went on a crusade basically to get rid of Christians and to burn and get rid of all their sacred scrolls, their writings. He killed so many Christians, he burnt so many copies of the scriptures that in the year 303 AD, he erected a pillar, and on that pillar had this inscription, the name of Christians has been extinguished. Well, not so fast, Jack. (laughs) 
a mere 20 years later, the new Roman emperor, Constantine, became a Christian, made Christianity the officially recognized religion of the Roman Empire. And one day he asked for a copy of the scriptures to be delivered to him, the scriptures that Diocletian, his predecessor, had supposedly gotten rid of, and he was stunned that within 24 hours, 50 copies of the scriptures lay at his feet. Where did they come from? They were hidden all around Diocletian's palace. You cannot, you cannot snuff out, stamp out, eliminate or destroy the word of God. The most powerful man on earth at the time tried to destroy the Bible and he failed. You cannot destroy it. It endures forever. You've heard of the atheist, the French atheist named Voltaire. Well, Voltaire once had the audacity to say this. 50 years from now, the world will hear no more of the Bible. <laughs> well, 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society bought Voltaire's estate and started printing hundreds of Bibles in his house! In his house! <laughs> Men come and go, but the Word of God endures forever! Amen, sister. Fifth plank in my argument, the Bible is further validated by fulfilled prophecy. And oh, how I wish I could dive into this in depth. Pastor Jay alluded to it last week. What would you say about a book that predicted hundreds of future events far in advance and they all ended up coming true just as the book had predicted? What would you say about a book like that? I'd say you'd be wise to pay attention to it, and especially its main message. Listen to the Lord's word quoted right out of his mouth. I am the Lord, Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare before they spring into being, I announce them to you. What's God saying? He's saying, I'm going to prove to you I am God by telling you what's going to happen before it happens. We know the Bible is the Word of God because it has done just that on many, many, many occasions. We call that fulfilled prophecy. In the Bible, we have many examples where God predicted the destruction of cities, the rise and fall of leaders and nations, the details of certain people's lives. It's incredible. For me, the greatest aspect of predictive prophecy revolves around Yeshua, Jesus, His birth, life, death. His resurrection, all described in amazing detail hundreds and in some cases thousands of years before they ever happened, before he even arrived on the scene. For example, the name of his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was predicted. The place of his birth was predicted. The visit by the wise men was prophesied far in advance, as well as the gifts that they would bring, the appearance of the star Herod's attempt, remember, to wipe out the king of the Jews, predicted in advance, his parents whisking him down to Egypt to avoid Herod's persecution. All of those details were predicted hundreds and hundreds of years in advance, and those are just the prophecies about his birth. Many other prophecies were fulfilled by his life, and especially his death. His betrayal by a friend was predicted a thousand years before it happened. Being sold for 30 pieces of silver was predicted 500 years. And how that money would be spent to purchase a potter's field was predicted hundreds of years before. His suffering, trial, and death were all recorded hundreds of years before they happened. And even details like being whipped and being spit upon, being forsaken by his friends, being given vinegar to drink. Remember that when he was hanging on the cross? Predicted. The fact that he would be executed alongside criminals... How about this one? The fact that his hands and feet would be pierced in crucifixion was predicted far in advance in an era where crucifixion didn't even exist as a method of execution. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Wow. The fact that his bones would not be broken in his death, that his thirst, remember he yelled out, I thirst, predicted 
people casting lots for his robe, his burial in a rich man's tomb, his resurrection from the grave, all predicted and described centuries before they ever happened, before Jesus was ever born in Bethlehem's manger. Dr. Harold Wilmington wrote this, Can any other founder of a known religion point to a similar written record of his life already in existence hundreds of years before his birth? The answer is no. Jesus is unique in his fulfilled prophecy. 332 distinct predictions which ended up being literally fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. Apparently, statisticians have calculated the odds of that happening. In fact, they've calculated the odds that any random person's life could fulfill just eight of those prophecies. Here's the odds of that happening. One in ten to the 17th power. You say, what kind of odds are those? Well, here's an analogy. Gather up a ton of silver dollar coins. Take them down to Texas. Texas. Cover the state of Texas, 270,000 square miles with silver dollars two feet deep. Take one of those silver dollars out, put a black X on it, toss it back in, stir it all up, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, stir it all up, pick some random person, blindfold them, tell them they have a few days to walk miles in any direction, and on their first pick, pick up that silver coin with the black X mark on it. That's one, the odds of that happening are one in 10 to the 17th power, and that's just fulfilling eight. Jesus filled fulfilled 332 of 332. I guess we could say Jesus smokes the competition too. <laughs> Listen, no one who believes in the Bible commits intellectual suicide. No one who believes in Christianity checks their brain at the door. It's based on solid evidence. Consider this also. The Bible's claim is supported by its scientific accuracy. Now, of course, some people have said the reason they don't believe the Bible is because of science, right? But get this, although it's not a science book, when the Bible speaks on scientific subjects, it speaks accurately. Now, it's true that the writers of Scripture were limited by their language, right? God chose to have His Word penned through individuals who came from a particular culture and knew a particular language, so that was a limitation for them. They didn't talk about, they didn't use the terms hydrology or condensation or things like that. They described things as they saw them with language that they understood. But when they spoke on scientific matters, they spoke accurately. And science keeps confirming that again and again and again. Quote here from Henry Morris, a scientist. He said, one of the most arresting evidences for the inspiration of the Bible is the great number of scientific truths that have lain hidden within its pages for 30 centuries or more, only to be discovered by man's enterprise within the last few centuries or even the last few years. And you know this, science has even contradicted itself a few times throughout the centuries, hasn't it? Had to correct itself. That's why science textbooks are out of date every few years, because of new discoveries. So yes, it's true that during certain eras, the Bible has contradicted certain theories put forth by science. But my contention is this, if you just give science enough time, it'll catch up and verify the scriptures. For example, for centuries, science taught that the earth was flat. Of course, when Columbus came along in 1492 and sailed the ocean blue and didn't fall off a ledge, some people started to change their opinion about that, but all they had to do was read Isaiah 40:22, written in 700 BC, where Isaiah wrote, he, God, sits above the circle of the earth. It's in the book. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. This is interesting. Until Isaac Newton, remember that guy, expressed his differing opinion in the late 1600s, many scientists believed that the earth rested on the back of something in space. Some said a giant turtle. Oh, that's scientific, yeah. The earth rests on the back of a, of a giant turtle, and then others came along and said, that's dumb. The earth rests on pillars suspended in space. Of course, in one of the earliest books of the Bible, Job, writing 3,000 years before Newton came on the scene, said this, he hangs the earth on nothing. Job 26, 7, suspended in space on nothing. Read the Bible. Science, given enough time, 
will catch up and verify the Word of God. Here's another example. Before the invention of telescopes, primitive telescopes in the 1600s, some scientists believed that there were a limited number of stars up in the heavens. In fact, Kepler, heard of him? He postulated that there were 1,055 stars up there. <laughs> nice, nice try. <laughs> if he had just read the Bible, if he'd read Jeremiah's account, who wrote 2,600 years before Kepler was around, he would have understood that the stars of the sky are innumerable, just like the sands on the seashore. And now modern science tells us there are several hundred billion stars just in our galaxy, and there's several hundred billion galaxies. Read the Bible, guys. Read the Bible. Science didn't have a good grasp on the water cycle, evaporation, condensation, precipitation, till about the 17th century, but Job, Solomon, and Isaiah had a handle on it thousands of years before. Job wrote this in Job 36, 27. He draws up the drops of water, which distill as rain to the streams. The clouds pour down their moisture, and abundant showers fall on mankind. So look, when science and the Bible seem to contradict, when there's an apparent discrepancy, just relax. Give science a few hundred or a thousand years, and it'll catch up and verify the Word of God. It will. Read the Bible. It's a theme I'm going to come back to in a moment. Well, let me mention one more reason for staking your life on the Bible. Number seven, the Bible possesses life-giving, life-transforming power. The Bible is alive. It's alive. Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active. You hold in your hands. It, it feels solid, but it's alive. It's pulsating with the life of God. John 6.63, love these words of Jesus. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. 1 Peter 1.23, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. The Bible's alive, and because it's alive, it changes people's lives. People read it, they believe it, and their lives are transformed. That's my story. I've told it before, but, but my parents raised me in such a way that the Word of God got deposited in my heart. They brought me to church where the Bible was preached. I'm grateful for that. They put me in Awana clubs, just like we have here. I was in Awana club as a kid where I memorized 397 verses to earn that Timothy Award. I still remember the very first verse I memorized from my Hunter handbook, Romans 4, 5. I could quote it to you right now. I'm grateful for that. The Word of God got deposited in my heart, and during my teen years, when I was straying away from God, when God was becoming less and less important to me during my teen years, what I didn't know is that the Bible was down there doing its work, planning a revolution, an insurrection. And when I was 18, I was reintroduced to the power of the Word of God. This Bible right here, it's well used, <laughs> is the Bible I had during that period of my life when my RA and some guys in my dorm were discipling me and saying to me, Steve, you got to get in the Word, man. you got to get in the Word. The Word of God is where it's at. If you want to know God, if you want to know about eternal life, if you want to live the way you were designed to live, you need to get in the Word. And they would say things like this, you know, you want to... You want to get a good grasp on the Bible? Here's what you do. Read it. Hear it. Study it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. That'll give you a good grasp of the Word of God. I remember sitting in a dormitory at midnight with six guys. This Bible, this very Bible, open on my lap, studying for myself the book of James. I still have my notes from that, what I wrote down in the fall of 1979 in this Bible. And it came alive to me. Everything about my life today, my outlook on life, my priorities, my value system, my belief system, my perspective, my view on relations, all of that shaped by the Word of God sown into my heart as a kid. Thank God for that. I thank God for it. The Bible's alive. It changes lives. I could tell any, any number of stories about this, but I, I love the story of my buddy, my tennis buddy, Charles, from high school. I've told you about him before because it, when I think about it, it's just stunning to me Charles was an atheist. He was raised by atheists, rich atheists. Guy had a tennis court in his backyard growing up. He had it all during those high school years. Money, smarts, gorgeous girlfriend, 
He was one of the best tennis players in our region, and that was saying something in Southern California in the 70s. Had it all going for him. But during his college years, when it all started to come unraveled, when all the props, the things that he'd been leaning on to feel significant, started to get kicked out from him, it was a copy of the Bible given to him by a student on campus that he went to in his despair. And he put the gun down and remembered where he put that Bible and started reading it. And it saved his life. And it changed his life. And I told you this. We reconnected on the internet a couple years ago. He's a missionary in Kenya. He's evangelizing. He's teaching the Bible. He's writing books on the glory of God. You've you got to be kidding me. That, only God could do that through his word. Transform my friend Charles into what he is today. Only God through the word. It's amazing. When we correspond via email, we just marvel. We say, isn't God good to take two dudes from the 70s from Southern California and turn their lives all the way around so that we love the Word of God? God is good. God is good. I wonder how many of you would say your life has been significantly impacted, changed, transformed through the Bible. Would you raise your hands? It's a powerful, powerful book. The Bible changes people's lives. But after all that, after that case being built, we must ask this, so what? So what? So what if we can demonstrate that the Bible is reliable history and it's, it's God's word to us and it changes life? So what? I have one point of application that I want all of you to look at me and hear me say to you today. Read it. You knew I was going to go there, didn't you? Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Read it. Listen to it. You got it on your iPad or iPod? Listen to it. The Word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. Read the Bible. Read it daily. Read it often. I have a dream as a pastor. Several dreams. But one of them is this. Everyone in the Word every day. Is that a pipe dream? I had a friend in college who named his bed, his dormitory bed. He named his bed the Word. So that when people ask where he was, he can say, well, I'm just spending time in the Word. That's not what I'm talking about. That's, that's not remotely what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being people of the book. People of the book. Did you know that's a common name for believers? People of the book? Are you a person of the book? Are you in the Word? Not your bed. Are you in the Word of God? The, the book? Read the Bible. If you're, you say, well, I'm a hardened skeptic. Okay, read the Bible. You don't want to get this one wrong, trust me. Read the Word of God. Read the book of Mark, start there. Or read the book of John, start there. Don't gamble your eternity away by dismissing the Bible as a bunch of myths or fairy tales. You will be sad and regretful that you did. Read the Bible, please. If you're someone here today who's on a quest to find the truth, I can give you no better advice than this. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. I'll give you a Bible. I'll give you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible and you're seeking, I'll give you a Bible. Go to the bookstore after the service. Go in there. Say, that guy up there said that he would pay for a Bible for me. Now, don't get the $90, you know, <laughs> study Greek, Hebrew. Just get the little $7 ESV Bible, okay? Just say, put it on pastor's tab and I want you to have a copy of the Bible and start reading. Read in Mark or John. The whole Bible is about Jesus, but it's those gospel accounts that really hone in tightly on who he was and his life and his miracles. Read the Bible. If you're a new believer, read the Bible. If you're a seasoned veteran believer, read the Bible. You never get beyond reading the Bible. I try to read the Bible every day. Every day. If I miss a day, I feel it, I feel weakened. Strengthen this book. Strengthen here. Read it. It's nourishment for your redeemed soul. Soul food. Soul food. You know, Jesus said once, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so what I like to say is this, if the only bread you're eating these days is wonder bread, you're not really living. Existing, maybe. But you're not really living. You know what? The reason some of you are so weak and don't have the strength to say no to that nagging temptation is because you're not eating healthy. Now, I'm not talking about candy bars. 
You're just feeding on junk food, all kinds of junk food. TV shows, movies, entertainment, all that kind of stuff. It's okay, but if that's all you're feeding on, that's just junk food. This is the Word of God. This is milk, meat, honey, bread. This is soul food for your soul. Read the Bible. You'll find strength returning to your soul that will enable you to say no to those temptations. You've heard this written inside the flyleaf of many Bibles. This book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Thy word have I hidden in my heart, David wrote, that I might not sin against thee. The reason some of you have so little joy in your life is because you're not feasting regularly on the delectable buffet of the word of God and its choice morsels. Job said, thy words were found, and I did eat them. (laughs) And they became unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. The reason some of you keep making stupid choices with your life is because you're not regularly and often renewing your mind with the wisdom of God's word to guide your impulses. And you keep making foolish decisions in part because you're not in the Word. Read the Bible, hear it, study it, listen to it, meditate on it. The reason some of you aren't thinking correctly about God and about life is because your mind isn't being renewed by the Word. The reason you don't have a, a, a Christian worldview is because you're not soaking and saturating your mind in the Bible, which is a Christian worldview. Read the Bible. The reason some of you don't really get the gospel while others around you seem to be happily swimming around in the gospel ocean is because you're not diving in deep to the Word of God. Dive in. It's glorious. There's a shallow end and a deep end. So deep you'll never explore the furthest reaches of the gospel ocean. Dive in. So you hear that. And we know we should read the Bible, right? Here's what we say to ourselves. I'm I'm just too busy. Steve, I'm I'm too busy. Really? You're you're too busy to read the Bible. Really? You know the truth about us? We do what we want to do. You do what you want to do. I do what I want to do. That's the truth about human beings, is it not? We do what we want to do. I mean, get honest. At least say, I don't read the Bible more because I don't want to. I mean, then you're at least on the path of truthfulness and honesty. The want to isn't there. I don't want it enough. Okay, okay. Well, I think it's God's beautiful timing that we're celebrating the Lord's table today. And you know why? Well, it's beautiful for many reasons, but I think the timing is beautiful because I've come to believe that it's hearing and experiencing the gospel that produces desire. The want to. I mean, that's what we need to ask. Where does the want to, to come, come from? And these people are not mad and leaving. They're getting ready to go serve <laughs> communion, okay? <laughs> I, hope, I hope that's the case. We're going to enjoy that in just a moment. As I finish, let me give you four words that you can apply right now to kind of sum this all up in terms of a response. Four R words. First, repent. You say that word? Repent. It's a good word. Don't let the wackos hijack that word so that you never use it. It's a good word. It's a Bible word. Repent. And maybe as we get ready to take the Lord's table together, you want and need to repent. Say, Lord Jesus, it was so wrong of me. It's so wrong of me to neglect your word. I've desired other things more than your word. That's true. But where other things, where entertainment or other things have become an idol, where other forms of input have pushed your word off my screen, I repent. Forgive me. Next word is return. That speaks of returning back to that place of surrender. Where you say, Jesus, I'm I'm returning to you. I'm coming back to you with my whole heart. I want you to be my life. And I want your words to be my food. Return that place of surrender, and then receive. This is a a word for communion, and and maybe as you come in just a few moments, and as you're receiving those elements, the bread and the cup, maybe you would say, as I take the bread and drink the cup, I'm receiving you, Jesus, again into my life, and I'm also receiving your cleansing from my sin. And then replace, replace. Replace.
Repent, return, receive, replace by your grace. I'm going to prioritize the reading and hearing of your word, Jesus. Strengthen me to where that's what I strongly desire, and that replaces other tastes and appetites that I've developed. I want your word to be the craving of my soul. Amen? Amen. And for all who belong to Christ, all who have believed his gospel by faith, let's enjoy his sacrifice once again and be changed by it. Let's bow our heads together. In a moment, some people are going to take their place around the perimeter of this room, some couples and some pairs, and they're going to be, they're here to serve communion to you. And I ask you to prepare your heart for that right now. Lord, thank you so much for your word. It is nourishment to the soul. As we come to this special moment, I pray you'd make it special today for your people, for those who believe the gospel, who are in Christ, who love Jesus. And may this act today symbolize this desire to receive you into a deeper place in our hearts, just as food goes down into our digestive tract, Lord. We want you to be fuller and deeper within us. Thank you that you've given us this way of demonstrating that, this gospel drama that we can feel and taste. Be pleased to come to us now. In Christ's name I pray. We have some prayer partners on each side, here and over here, who would love the opportunity to pray with you. If God's speaking to you about something, let somebody pray with you. Some of you might need to come and be prayed with first before taking communion, just kind of walking through those R words together. But what you'll do is you'll come when you're ready to one of these couples. You'll take a piece of bread, and they'll say, this is Christ's body given for you. And then you'll dip it down into the cup. And the other person will say, this is Christ's blood shed for you, and you'll partake. And that symbolizes taking in Jesus again to a deeper place in your life. So when you're ready, come and we'll worship together.